parts that we have to keep track of, um, but it's so good to be together. Um, I'm really grateful that we can gather uh, in many different ways, of course. Uh, most of our folks are not here physically for various uh, very valid and important reasons, but so glad that you guys can be here. Um, I've enjoyed preaching God's Word, of course. It's always a privilege, and um, if you're a guest with, with us, by the way, let me introduce myself. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to preach on most Sundays. Uh, always a privilege to serve the Lord and serve His people by proclaiming His truth, um, but it's hard to do it in front of a camera, and I've loved doing it with our small crew here, but it is really wonderful to see you guys, and just to be with you, but also to have the privilege of bringing you God's Word. We are in Exodus chapter 20, making our way through this book. Um, we're going to be looking at the last three commands of the Ten Commandments, so you can be turning to Exodus chapter 20, and then the latter part of, of that chapter. Uh, we'll look at verses 12 through 17. Um, I hope in this book, this wonderful book of Exodus, and, I, and even in focusing on the Ten Commandments, that you hear in those things the promise of a kingdom, a kingdom, a place of truth and love and goodness and harmony. Um, uh, this, what God's doing in Exodus is He's creating a covenant people who are to live under Him, under His grace, and in that place to believe and obey Him and to experience a kingdom. A kingdom full of truth and love and goodness and harmony. And I think in times such as we're in right now with the COVID crisis, we probably have a stronger longing for that than normal. But I think it's, it's a normal thing uh, to live in this world and to long for a place, long for a world without strife without sickness, without evil. Um, if you examine history, you'll see actually a lot of efforts over time to create what we call utopias. And utopia uh, literally means good place. That's literally what it is. Uh, and there are lots of different efforts throughout time to create utopias, this place where there's a kingdom of, of peace and harmony. Uh, right near us, uh, up in in uh, Canterbury, New Hampshire, is the Shaker, a Shaker village. There were a number of Shaker villages. Anyone here ever heard of the Shakers? Uh, great. So it, the village is there. It's still much of it is intact. The Shakers were uh, a group, a quasi-Christian. They really weren't Christian, but they're near Christian truth. A quasi-Christian group that formed basically a community in the effort to create a utopia and to await the ultimate utopia. Uh, they believed that God would bring bring back. And so they formed these communities. They lived together. Um, they shared things in common. Um, they uh, practiced celibacy. And, um, and they were called shakers because actually during their religious services, they would shake when they felt like God was speaking to them. They were really model communities in many ways of, of uh, love and care, industry, cleanliness, technological innovation. Uh, did you know that they uh, not only invented the shaker chair, if you've ever have seen that, a lightweight and strong chair, uh, invented bureaus, modern bureaus, the modern clothespin, um, automatic washing machines, circular saws, all came from the Shakers. Condensed milk, actually, is another one. Um, so they were seeking to create this utopia, and, and yet they had some things really wrong. First off, they, they didn't understand who Jesus was. They believed one of their founders was the second coming of Jesus. That's kind of a, a big mistake. Uh, but they also misunderstood, in some ways, how God creates His kingdom. That God, we're learning, is a covenant God. And it's in the context of covenant that He calls people 
to himself, to walk in his ways, to, to receive his grace, to depend on him, and to obey him. And, and we're learning about the old covenant, and we know that the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant and all covenants is in Christ and the new covenant that we live in. And ultimately, God is making a utopia under his law. And so I just share that so we get a picture and a sense of what God's doing, how this works, and how His law works. So these Ten Commandments are part of that. All these commandments are good things, and there's a promise in these commandments of blessing and prosperity and flourishing and uh, really the ultimate good life. So let's pray. We'll look at God's Word. We'll seek to understand and grow in these things uh, and learn more about His kingdom, His glorious kingdom. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for Your rescue. You are God who rescues people from brokenness and the fallenness of our world, the strife. And in You, Lord, there is forgiveness and salvation and new life and a new way of living that You give us. uh, And You teach us this through Your Word. So I pray as we go through Exodus, Lord, would You help me to teach well? Would You help us to hear and learn from You and to walk in Your glorious ways? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Exodus chapter 20. I'll just read the very beginning of verses 1 and 2, then jump down to verses 12 through 17. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then verse 12, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That's Exodus 20, verses 12 through 17. And we've been in this a little while uh, and we've gone through the first uh, four commandments that are about relating to God. Then we went through the next three. Uh, In the second half of the commandments, it's about loving one another. Uh, and we're now at the last three commandments. We'll look at these last three commandments. They are all given in the context of covenant. So by way of review, we've been talking about this idea of covenant. Very important for understanding God. Very important for understanding the Bible. Very important for understanding ourselves. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And He's a God who has made these covenants, these arrangements, these, these social contracts with humanity. And in these covenants, He calls for a relationship. He calls for faith and He calls for obedience. And so there's multiple key covenants in Scripture. First, just with Adam and Eve. Uh, it, it's a, not as formal of a covenant, but nevertheless a covenant with them. He's gracious to them and He says, I want you to obey Me. Just this one thing. That's all you need to do. And they broke that covenant. They fell from that covenant. And then later on, He makes a covenant through Noah. And, and, and then we come to this covenant, the Sinai covenant, where He is gracious to them. He rescues them from Egypt. Uh, he acts to, in, in a wonderful, gracious way in love for them to call them to Himself. And He says, now, having rescued you, I want you to be My people. Um, and He says in Exodus 19, He sums up the covenant in a number of places, but Exodus 19 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that's the covenant. God has rescued them, calls them to Himself, and says, now obey. Now the old covenant, this Sinai covenant, 
is distinct from the New Covenant. The New Covenant is the fulfillment of it, but it's distinct. And this Old Covenant had conditions for staying in the covenant. So God had acted graciously. He rescued them. And He says, now I want you to obey Me. And if you obey Me, you will be My treasured people among all the earth. It's actually a fabulous promise. Sorry, I've got to stay behind the screen. A fabulous promise uh, given to His people. Um, if they would obey, he, they would be a, a kingdom of priests. They would represent Him on earth and they would be blessed in all these ways. Uh, if they would keep it. Now we know they didn't. Um, and ultimately that's pointing for them, pointing them towards the need for something better, which is fulfilled in Christ. Christ Himself comes and fulfills the conditions of the covenants. Uh, he is, fulfills all righteousness. He obeys. And through simple faith in Him, we become joined with Christ and we are given forgiveness through His blood, His death and resurrection. And we're credited with His righteousness. So we are now in that, the new covenant permanently in Jesus. And so all those blessings are ultimately ours. Um, God has a plan and all that. But we, we now live in this new covenant uh, by grace. Nevertheless, He's creating in us new people. He writes the law in our hearts that we would walk and become more and more like Jesus. So obedience uh, is not a condition for the covenant for us in the sense that we have to obey to stay in or get in. But it is a result of the covenant now. It's very important, nevertheless. And so His law is really important for us. It's not that, you know, well, Jesus fulfilled the law and so now I can do whatever I want. No. His law is really important. His law is really just the details of love. We've talked about that. You sum up the law this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are, those are good things. They're obvious things. They're necessary things. And the law as a whole is the detailing of that. The details matter. You can say, well, I, you know, I, love my, I love my wife. And yet if you don't do anything, if, you don't, you know, if, you don't, if you're not there to help her when she needs you, if, she, if you're not supportive of her, or whatever else, other details there, you can't really say you love. So the details matter. And the law really is the details of God. It's the details of love. So we've been learning too, again by way of review, the law uh, presents these truths about the ways of God in different ways. Sometimes it's positive. So do this thing. Keep the Sabbath holy. Sometimes it's negative. Do not murder. Sometimes it's brief. Like, do not murder. But sometimes it's lengthy. Like, if your brother has an offense against you and you're going to worship, leave your gift there at the altar. First go and be reconciled to God. Then come and offer your gift. That's a, a working out of the principle of do not murder. The principle behind do not murder is everyone's made in the image of God, so we are to love and respect them. And therefore, we deal with conflict, especially with our brothers and sisters. So sometimes it's detail, uh, but it's all God's law. And then we talked about uh, the three metaphors, the three uses of the law, purposes of the law, how it functions. You guys remember? Since I have an audience, I can ask questions now. Um, the three things, the three metaphors. One was a mirror. Excellent. A mirror. And so God's law is a mirror and it shows us ourselves. It shows us ourselves and what we really look like morally. Um, when we look at the law, it, it examines us. It shows us what's good. We can look at it and say, wow, I'm really grateful. I, you know, I am learning to love others and to love my spouse and so forth. But then also it's like, ooh, I guess I don't really do that one, do I? And so it's honest. It, it forces us to be honest with ourselves, to see ourselves. So it's a mirror. Um, the second Metaphor, the use is as, anyone remember? Police, right? The police effect, right? When you're going down the highway at, 
at a 75 and a 65. No one here ever does that, right? Um, and, and the police are there, everyone slows down. And then they slow, sometimes they slow way down, right? They go like 45. It's like, why is everyone going 45? We can go 65. But that's the police effect. It's just, it's a wake-up call. Whoa, wake up. You're, you're speeding. Slow down. And so it has that effect, the, the police effect on us as well. And it does that not, not just individually, not just for believers or followers. It does that for culture. There's a good benefit of the law and culture. And it gets people to stop driving in a crazy way. It gets people to stop doing things that are wrong. Thirdly, the purpose of the law, having uh, gone to the mirror and being confronted by the police and then run to Jesus. Remember we talked about that? Because that forces us to recognize our need that we fall short. And there's only one rescue for that. That's Jesus and His blood and His righteousness. Risen again, victorious over sin and death. And now when we come to Him, it's simply in faith we're forgiven. We're included in the covenant. We're called sons and daughters. And now that we have this new life, the Spirit of God is in us, we still need the law. Because the law is the details of law. And so the third metaphor is the law as a map. Good. And so it's a map for our journey. It shows us the way. So I, I know I've talked about that a number of times, and I just do that because I, I want to serve you. I want to help you understand and enjoy God's law and apply it. So with that in mind, let's, let's jump into the last three commands. Actually, I just want to encourage you to, to memorize these command, commandments. Uh, I memorized them as a kid uh, before I truly knew Jesus as a, as a young kid, and, and, um, and I can't remember how old I was, but I knew the Ten Commandments way back. Anyone here have them memorized? Want to, yeah, if you want to go for it. Well, let's try together, just by way. Uh, first commandment. You have no gods before me, no false gods. Second commandment. Not make a graven image, so no idols. Third commandment. Don't take his name in vain, right? No misusing God's name. Fourth commandment. Keep the Sabbath holy. Good. Very good, guys. You're doing all right. Fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Very good. Sixth commandment. Do not murder. Seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. Eighth commandment. Do not steal. Excellent. Ninth. Do not bear false. I heard that. Do not bear false witness, right? Good. And tenth. Do not covet. All right? Excellent. Those are the Ten Commandments. And, and again, the, the Ten Commandments are like a cheat sheet for all the law. All right? So you could basically tie in all the law to these Ten Commandments. So it's a way uh, to, to help us remember all these other principles. So it's worthy of, of memorization. And, and, and then it's important for us to understand, not make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, as long as I don't murder, I'm good. No, it points to a deeper principle. And that's how it's supposed to function. Um, so, Let's dig into these final commandments. Commandment number eight. You shall not steal. Again, these in the Hebrew are very simple often. Just two words. No stealing is what it says. Um, it's a prohibition, right? You, you don't do this. But it points to a deeper principle actually that we see throughout Scripture. Stealing now, of course, to define it, is taking something that isn't yours. Something that belongs to someone else. But that statement actually carries with it some important principles because you're assuming in that that things can belong to people. Right? So there's a background to this that, that basically affirms the right of ownership of property. 
Human beings have a right to own their own property, and we need to respect that right. And why do we respect that right? Because they're human beings. They're made in the image of God. They are made in God's image, and they are individuals as well. And therefore, they have a right to personal property. Therefore, I don't have a right to take it. That's really important to get. So just like think, do not steal. Yeah, I haven't stolen. Well, it actually points to a much deeper principle, this idea of property and ownership and the dignity of human beings made in God's image and the dignity of owning their own property. I hope you see that connection. Um, and, and there's a lot. There's a lot to that. It's very profound. Um, because if you don't have that, you change a lot of things, right? If you say, well, the only people that can own property are the aristocracy, so the people that are ruling, or maybe the only people that can own property is the state as a collective, but individuals, nope, no, no individual rights. That shifts how you think about individuals. And it devalues individuals who are made in God's image. And, and that, so it's important to see the, the implications here in, in many ways. So, so stealing is prohibited because we are basically harming or insulting others, insulting the image of God and the dignity of other people. And of course, creating disruption and problems as well. And so this commandment is connected elsewhere in Scripture. Leviticus uh, details this more. Um, in Leviticus 6, they are told that anyone who, who robs, uh, actually i just read through it quickly, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of a deposit, or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. And give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So it's detailing all these ways that maybe you would steal. Even finding something that belongs to someone else and lying about it. Finders keepers. Well, this says no. If you, knows, if you know who it belongs to, there's no finders keepers. Um, Leviticus 19. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Interesting. Don't rob and don't keep wages from those who are owed wages. We'll talk about that a little bit in a few minutes. So personal property, it's also the property of the person. So Exodus 21, whoever steals a man, certainly man or woman, is implied in the, the universal word, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Wow. The only instance I know of where stealing has a capital offense is when you steal a person. Kidnapping. Deuteronomy 24, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So, kidnapping and slave trading of any sort is a capital offense in the Bible. That's because people have a right to property, and certainly to property of their own person. The New Testament is, is full of this principle as well. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, speaking of those that, that are in the kingdom and those that are outside, it says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is to be full of people who are not thieves, but something else. Well, we see that in Ephesians 4. It says, 
let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the opposite of stealing is what? Working hard and sharing with others. And so again, remember these commandments point to a deeper principle. And what we're called to do is to work hard for our own property, but then to share our property. We basically work hard to acquire property. It's an appropriate thing done in the appropriate way, of course. Work hard to acquire property and then use that property to dignify others who don't have the opportunities that we might have. That's what's going on here. So the dignity of people is at stake in the connection to property. And so we're called to use our gifts, use our talents to generate property and then to dignify others who are in need. To help them. And of course, there's a biblical way to help someone, right? Where you teach them to earn their own. You help them if they're unable for some reason to work at all. And of course, we take care of them. That's how this is fulfilled. In hard work. And, and so, uh, so the laborer, the person who works for someone else, is to work hard and to actually work hard for the owner and not steal from them by being lazy. Not sandbagging, right? Just how, what can I get away with? I'm getting paid hourly. I'm just going to chill out and try to not do anything here. No. This commandment and the principles behind it say if you're being paid by the hour, then work the whole hour as much as you can. Don't try to find how you can cheat your boss, but work hard for your boss. Work hard to generate property. Work hard to bless. And then, of course, the owner needs to respect the worker as well. And to give the worker those wages that he or she deserves. To pay for that. And the, the, and the worker should respect the ownership of the owner as well. So the, these are important principles. And, and these are principles made to honor God, to bless one another, to, to see flourishing. So hard work is how we fulfill this commandment, among other ways. Um, I remember when I was in college, uh, during the summer, we, I attended a, a summer discipleship, Christian discipleship program run by the Navigators. And we worked, and we studied the Bible, and we worked on teams and did lots of uh, great stuff. But we worked at uh, a, a pickle factory. Um, and I know I've told stories about my, my ability as a pickle packer. I'll save that for another time. But the factory, it was grueling work. It was really grueling work. And so it was eight hours, and you were just packing pickles in a jar the whole time. Um, and it was hard to work hard there. And there was a young man who, I don't know all of his background, but he hadn't really worked hard in his life. Perhaps he had things done for him. He hadn't learned to work hard. And he had come to Christ. He wanted to obey. He wanted to live in this new life. He wanted to fulfill this commandment um, and to work with, with uh, all of his efforts. And it was a real struggle for him. And at one point, though, he, he came home from a, a day at the factory, and he was all excited because that day he had finally made an, an all-out effort to work the whole day, to work hard the whole day. And, it, and it, it's something to be excited about because it honors God and it blesses this principle. And that connects, of course, to Jesus tells the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents is, is about... It's a, it's a story that represents really what life is like and that we are all given talents and the Lord gives us these abilities it's the word the word talent means a lump of gold it's where we get the English word talent which means an ability because this parable this story is really using that gold to represent your ability your skills we're all given talents 
And the Lord gives those to us and He says, now I want you to use them. When I come back, I want you to multiply those talents so that there's more. And you know the story. Uh, two of the, the people who received the talents to the servants invested those talents and doubled those talents and so forth. And then there was one guy who was lazy. He didn't understand the Master. He didn't understand the Master's graciousness and the Master's worth, I think, too. He's a wicked, lazy servant. He didn't do anything. That parable ties into this commandment because God gives us this ability to generate wealth and to generate income, to do things, kingdom things, with our skills and abilities. He ultimately owns all things. And so He calls us now to invest those things to work hard for the kingdom and to share with others. I hope that makes sense. Uh, just some ways we can think about that commandment and understand this commandment calls us to all these things. Second commandment to look at today, the, num- the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. So it, bears, it prohibits bearing false witness, and that seems like a little bit of a weird word maybe to, to you. Um, what does it mean to bear false witness? Well, it, it actually relates to the, the courtroom and it's about specifically uh, telling the truth when you're under oath or when you're in court or if there's some sort of legal thing at stake. But I don't think the Lord would have included it in the Ten Commandments if it was merely about court. Because the truth here goes way beyond just what you do in court. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a teaching tool, famous teaching tool of Presbyterians uh, historically, and it's something, by the way, I'd encourage you to take your children through even have them memorized. We went through when the kids were young. Um, And it it comments and teaches on these different commandments, among other things. It does a great job of actually talking about this commandment. And the next one, I'm going to use it as well. And it has a question and answer format. So it says, what is required in the ninth commandment? And the answer, the ninth commandment requireth, the old English, the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man, and our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. So this commandment is about promoting truth and what we say about others and how we protect their name, especially in witness bearing, but otherwise as well. So Proverbs 14, 25 says, a truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. And then the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism says, what is forbidden in the ninth commandment? So they are doing kind of what we're doing, looking at the, the deeper uh, meaning of the commandment, so it's requiring and forbidden things. So what, is it, what does it forbid? The ninth commandment forbids whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. So anything we might say that would injure another, that's prohibited. So we only speak the truth and we only speak what is ultimately helpful. So this commandment is about loving our neighbors in our community by speaking truthfully about people in court, but also interpersonally. Avoiding slander or gossip or hearsay of any sort. And this can be hard, right? James speaks of our tongues, our speech. He says in chapter 3, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. There it is again. People are made in the likeness of God and so we should use our mouths And what we speak about them, to honor them, to care for them, to be respectful and loving. Yet from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to to be so, James says. Now, 
this is a wonderful law, and I think we, we see how important it is. The good news is Jesus comes to pay for our sins, whether our, our sins are other violating other commandments or this one, a common sin, and a terrible one. His blood is shed for those sins. So receive that forgiveness. So turn away from that sin. Receive that forgiveness and ask Him to help you. And He calls us to this new way of living. This new way of speaking. This new way of regarding others. And so He says in Ephesians 4, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. It's interesting, this, this verse connects into Leviticus as well, where uh, in chapter 19 of Leviticus, it talks about loving our neighbor as ourselves. If you look at the context there, it says that we're just to, to not slander, and we're to speak frankly with our neighbor. And then it says, love your neighbor as yourself. So this loving your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus and in Ephesians 4 is about speaking the truth and speaking speaking things that are helpful. Even if, if we have to be frank, it's better to be frank and truthful and discreet than to go slandering. Even if that's just a subtle thing. And that's, that's often what our gossip and slander can be. It's just subtle complaining. Like, oh, I can't believe they did that again. Can I tell you about what happened? And, and it's, that person doesn't need to hear that story. And we're not edifying them. It's a violation of this commandment. And I think when we get the good news of Jesus, when we understand the good news, it, it, it provides powerful motivation to be careful with our words. And that's the only place you can go to overcome this one. And when you understand in the Gospel that, that you and I and our sin and our falling short of the commandments of God to love God with all of our being and love others deserve eternal separation from God. It's the just thing to do. The wages of sin is death. The just thing for God to do is to respond to our rebellion by saying, away from me. And yet in His great love for us, rather than saying away from me, He said, I want you to be with me. And He died in our place on the cross for our sins. Rose again for us. That those sins may be forgiven. That he might, we might draw near to Him. And be counted as if we had never gossiped, never slandered, never done anything wrong. And treated as, as Jesus deserves to be treated. And so He overlooks all of our faults through Christ, through His blood, in His righteous life. Overlooks all the things that we've done wrong. He overlooks all the reasons that He might complain and grumble about us. That He might be irritated and frustrated with us. All covered by the blood of Christ. That's how much He loves us. That's how much He forgives us. And when we get that, and when we live in that, and remind each other of that, it gives us power to now extend grace to others. And when they do things that maybe you, know, you feel like deserve a venting, you can overlook it and forgive them and avoid the venting. Avoid telling others who don't need to hear that. And instead, forgive them and love them and respect them. And yes, maybe you need to go and talk to them about that if it's, if it's something that's really harming your relationship. But you go discreetly because the grace of God you have in the Gospel motivates you and fills out the picture of how to use your words to edify. That's why I think Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 13, this new life that has love at the core of it and that, this love that will endure forever. In describing this love, he describes it this way, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. This is speaking of interrelationally. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. When you understand the forgiveness and love of Christ as you relate to others, you are, you are thinking the best about them, not the worst. You are looking to speak blessing to them and blessing about them as well. That's how we fulfill this commandment. That's what we're called to. And I think we all understand that because we've all been in places where we've perhaps had someone, I think I can say, we've all had someone speak about us in a harmful way and felt the hurt. Words matter. Words can be damaging. And people deserve more as those made in the image of God. And for us as recipients of grace, we are called to something better. Words can be harmful and bring great tragedy. A, a dedicated and well-loved Virginia teacher named Ron Mayfield committed suicide two weeks after being wrongly accused of assaulting a wheelchair-bound middle school student. Apparently the student, who was no stranger to misbehavior, was angry with Mr. Mayfield for removing him from class for being disruptive. As a result of the accusations, Mr. Mayfield took his life by jumping off a bridge in, into the Roanoke River where he had often fished with his father and his son. He put a note for his wife on, in his Bible on the front seat of his car. He left her a goodbye voicemail. He called 911 and he climbed over the fence and let himself fall into the river 200 feet below. His widow told the Washington Post that he had been depressed, tired, and nervous during his suspension from work. He said, I cannot have my face on television and the newspaper over this incident. He wrote her in a note, there is no way I could carry on. Absolutely no way. Tragically, Mr. Mayfield never knew that the police had already cleared him of any wrongdoing. The day before he took his life, they had notified school officials that there was no evidence to substantiate the charge and the case had been closed. But the accusation and the shame Attached to it was too much for Mr. Mayfield to bear. God forbid that we should ever be a party to such hurtful speech. Let us, because of the great love of God for us in Christ, and His clear and good law, commit to obey His Word. Let us pledge to only and always, by God's grace, as hard as we can do it, only and always edify with our speech, to guard our mouths, to make sure what we say is helpful and truthful. We as a church actually have this truth written out in a policy because we felt like at one point it was important to establish these truths. And so there's a Karen Grace communication policy and I encourage you, if you went through membership here, you went through that material, I encourage you to look at it again. It basically spells out how we speak in ways that are edifying. How we, how we, when there are issues to deal with, we use the God-ordained channels. So it doesn't mean be passive and do nothing, but use the God-ordained channels to resolve issues. How, how, it speaks of how we honor God in that. So that's really important. And this commandment is so important. And God calls us to something much better. Final commandment, number 10. You shall not covet. 
This commandment's a little different than the others. Not that the others in, don't speak of heart motivations. They do. But this one particularly goes after desire versus actual actions. We're not to covet. We're not to desire. We're not to want something that's not ours. Not only are we not to take something that's not ours, but we're not even to want it. We're not to say, I want that thing. Not to covet anything that belongs to somebody else at all. So again, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, what is required in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment requires full contentment with our own condition. With a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. Wonderful way to understand this commandment. It isn't just don't covet, but how do you, how do you combat covetousness? Contentment. To be content with what you have. I don't need that. I have this. And not only that, but not coveting means I'm glad for them to have it. So we are rejoicing in their prosperity. Not just like tolerating it, but rejoicing in it. And then it says what is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, or all inordinate emotions and affections to anything that is his. So we're to be content. And Scripture has a lot to say about contentment. Scripture has a lot to say, uh, too. There are a number of negative examples of covetousness. You perhaps are familiar with some of these. You can just look through some of the stories in your Bible. Uh, anyone heard, ever heard of Achan? Achan's sin? He coveted, uh, he coveted gold and, and idols and so forth that he was told. The whole people of Israel were told these were forbidden. Uh, he coveted it and he brought uh, danger to the whole nation of Israel as a result. Um, later on, Ahab, King Ahab, coveted his neighbor's vineyard. And, and basically had him killed uh, through his wife by falsely accusing him. Um, and, and so he coveted his neighbor's vineyard. David coveted his, coveted his neighbor's wife and not only committed adultery, but had the husband killed by placing him in a dangerous position during combat. Terrible stories of covetousness, all forbidden clearly by this commandment. And yet there are wonderful examples too. In the story of Job, when Job is finally restored in the end, his family and friends comes and gathers with him and rejoices over Job's restoration. They are fulfilling this commandment by being glad that Job now is blessed and now he has material prosperity, relational prosperity, health again. And, and actually they give him gifts. Isn't that wild? I mean, the guy has received all this stuff in his restoration. They come and they give him gifts because they're so happy for him. Think of also the, you know, the parable of the lost coin and lost sheep where when they find the coin, find the sheep, they call their neighbors together and they say, rejoice with me. We're called to rejoice with others, rejoice with those who rejoice in Scripture. Apostle Paul speaks to this too, the importance of, of learning contentment and how powerful it is when we're content in the Lord. Um, the church in Philippi wanted to give him a gift and he received that gladly. But he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, to be in a low place. And I know how to abound. In any and every situation, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
So no matter what's going on, what he's going through, whether he's got a lot or got a little, I've learned the secret, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He, he has the ability to be strengthened because of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13 speaks, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, the Lord is with us. He's there. He's all that we need. Um, we, we can be no richer than we are in Jesus. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. Beloved. Esteemed. He, we have all things. Actually, Scripture says all things are ours. Um, and not in the sense that we violate this commandment. But all things are ours because Jesus ultimately owns all things. And we belong to Jesus. And He works all things for our good. And so we have everything we need in Him. He is the focal point and the strength of our contentment. It's interesting, even the Apostle Peter struggled with this at the end of, of John. John chapter 21. Jesus tells Peter, this is what your life is going to look like. You know, you're going to basically be tied up and forced to go places. And he looks over at John and he says, what about that one? This is the temptation, right? To covet John's situation versus his. Like, I don't like this situation. I don't want to be tied up later on. I don't want to do this. What about that guy? What does he get? And Jesus' answer to him is, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? In other words, it's not your business, Peter. His life is my business and your life is my business. Says it, uh, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter, you look to me. Your life is found in me. And that is the core and the secret of contentment. I hope that makes sense. We live in a culture that is, is um, at least our economy in many ways, is based on discontentment. Uh, back in the 20th century, uh, the, there was basically the understanding in the economy, if you really want to grow the economy, you have to create a sense of discontentment. You have to uh, get people to, to realize you know, or think, feel like, I need that. Uh, and there was advertising developed actually uh, aimed at that. And the advertising that goes on today is about that. And actually there's stuff done, they've studied the psychology of desire. And there's a, f a famous man who was really the father of modern advertising, Edward Bernays is his name. He was Sigmund Freud's nephew. And he used some of the same thinking to create advertising. Uh, and there's a lot of stories to learn about him. Actually, a couple of the slides, if we could show those slides. Um, he was hired to help sell bacon. I don't know why anyone would need to help sell bacon, but he was uh, hired to do that. And so he created, he asked doctors to, to uh, answer a simple question, do you think people should eat hearty breakfasts or light breakfasts? And the doctors, of course, said hearty breakfasts. And so he took that and said, well, here's a hearty breakfast. All doctors say you should eat a hearty breakfast like bacon and eggs. And so he, he, he basically got people to buy bacon and eggs. You don't need to motivate me for that, but anyhow. Uh, next slide. Here's another one. He, he was behind the cigarette campaign to get women smoking, and he used things like this with Lucky Strikes. And this promises that if you smoke Lucky Strikes, instead of reaching for a snack, you'll look like the woman on the right versus the left. And you look at that and think, well, okay, I want to look like that other woman, um, be skinny like her, and so Lucky Strikes will help me do that. Next slide, please. Here's Lucky Strikes. Somehow they improve your love life, it, it looks like here. And all these things, these sorts of advertisements, now these are all politically incorrect perhaps today, 
But if you look at advertising today, it does the same thing. It gets you to, to at a deep level, even a subconscious level, desire. Oh, I, I want that. There's something there. There's security. There's happiness. That's the good life. If I buy that pickup truck, then I'll be masculine and successful. Um, or if I have that, my family will be harmonious. And it gets us to really covet and buy. And so we live in this world that is full of this, and we need to hear the Word of God. Do not covet. Do not covet. But be content in Jesus. Well, I hope and I expect that the Word of God and the law of God has done its work today in these last three commandments. So let's just take some time to think in light of that, in light of His Word, in light of the law, in light of how it functions as a mirror, as police, and as a map. So let the Holy Spirit do His wonderful work of conviction. It's, it's good to look in the mirror and look at your own heart. So let's just take a moment before we transition, before Pastor Toby transitions us, to consider one of these commandments and maybe one aspect for you as you look in the mirror, you realize, oh, that one. And go before the Lord and remember Jesus' blood shed for you. His resurrection for you. Receive that. Receive what He's done for you. Ask Him to forgive you. And ask Him to help you now live in the law. Live out the good ways of the Lord. Finding your life in Him. We'll take a minute to do that and then Pastor Toby will come up to transition us.